Hey, I'm Sam Han, and you're listening to the Weldon Green Podcast, a show about performance and esports. Weldon Green is the performance coach and sports psychology trainer for esports athletes focused on helping them optimize their game, learn faster, stop tilting, and get in the zone. Every episode, I bring together questions and answers from the Ask Weldon YouTube show, revolving around a specific topic he has covered. In this episode, that topic is tilt. If you haven't heard of the term tilted, let's start from the beginning. One of the older usages of tilt comes from poker. In poker, tilt refers to a player's mental or emotional state of frustration. This state of tilt can lead to players making overaggressive calls, bidding mistakes, and other suboptimal plays. Now, you hear the term tilting all over any game you've played. You've witnessed pro players making head-scratching mistakes on stage, and you've experienced losing streaks ridden with countless bad decisions. Not only do we experience tilt, We spend hours on YouTube and Twitch watching and laughing at the pain people experience tilting. Turtles forced a barrier. Oh, he flashes into the wall. Don't wait for that one, and this is going to be outplayed. Oh, fail flash. Zion's firing. Can he get over the wall? No, it's such a thick wall. Tilting is literally everywhere. Seriously? OMG. Tilting is so, like, mainstream. Yeah, tilting is mainstream. So how do you deal with tilt? Is it possible to be tilt-proof? What about your friends? How do you deal with their tilt? Oh, what about, is tilt actually the reason you're losing? Well, let's start by answering a question from Owen. Owen asks, what do you suggest to stop the endless cycle of tilting from solo queue games? Okay, this is a great question because I think uh, it's tackled in a lot of different ways. So I'll give the way that I do it. Um, I stop my tilting by stopping playing as a test to see if I can overcome my frustration with not winning. So for example, I often tilt when I'm like losing a lot. And so instead of playing until I get that final win or finally get that satisfying game so that I can go to bed happy or quit playing happy, I'll purposely stop playing early when I'm still unhappy with my performance and dissatisfied. And then I will like try to recalibrate my brain into a into a state of gratitude and get over it. And I use that as training to essentially make myself more tilt-proof, like actually in the game. So that is how I end the cycle of tilting, basically. But really what you need is a reset switch. And for me and for many other people, that reset switch is gratitude. You have to find a way to be grateful for the things that are happening to you right now. Not like your life in general, but like Uh, local gratefulness. And I find that a very powerful kind of mindset to help me kick out of any sort of like tilting framework. So I recommend listing a couple things that you're grateful for. Uh, Three is usually a nice round number. And you might notice you get better and better at this, like the more that you do it. So essentially, like you start out with big grandiose things and uh, eventually you eliminate those uh, as you get bored with saying the same thing over and over again. You start noticing things you know, within the last five minutes, 10 minutes, hour that you're actually quite grateful for that are uh, really kind of a fantastic uh, way to to reframe your experience of reality. For Weldon, losing causes him to tilt. Therefore, he stops playing after a loss and exercises the ability to reset his mind to a state of gratitude. So what is your trigger and how can you turn your frustrated state of mind into one of gratitude? For example, when I make a call and commit to a play that no one follows up on, 
That causes me to tilt. Next time that happens, I'll take a deep breath. And then remind myself that I'm grateful for being able to play with my friends. Or that there was a favorable outcome even though no one followed my call. Now, let's take a step back from talking about stopping tilt with a question from Quake. Quake asks, how do I prevent myself from going on tilt and getting frustrated? So this is the million dollar question, of course. Um, preventing yourself from going on tilt, I personally don't think that's possible. I mean, I think that like everybody's going to have a bad day at some point. Like you can make yourself really mentally robust, but then internally you're going to get frustrated. You're going to go on tilt, but I don't think that those are bad things. I think it's bad when it affects your performance. So if you're tilting internally and your performance is fine, then are you really tilting? I mean, we, we've seen examples of this in elite sport where uh, Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant were like severely on emotional tilt, but it didn't impact their, their performance that much. And it really comes down to like just having the mental resilience to say like, I don't care if I feel bad, I'm going to do what's necessary. And a lot of people get that when they're playing on stage. Like they're like, I don't care that my teammate didn't follow my orders or whatever. I'm super adrenaline pumped and I want to win anyway. So I'll just like ignore that insult and I'll, and I'll keep going forward. But then in the training environment, it gets, it gets iffy because like you don't have enough oomph chemically in your body to just overcome all of those little, uh, you know, pinpricks that you get from teammates or from opponents. And it just kind of puts you, um, mechanically on tilt. So I think that like ramping up the importance of what you're doing in terms of the values that you want to live out in your play is probably the best way to change from being emotionally driven to being values driven. This episode of the Weldon Green Podcast is supported by Runtime. Runtime has one simple goal, fix nutrition for esports. One of Runtime's products is a next level meal, a meal replacement full of vitamins, minerals, and all the macronutrients your body needs. Hey Weldon, what's next level meal like? Kind of like Soylent and all of those other meal replacement foods or drinks. The idea being that you eat it instead of a meal, except in this case, you drink it. Now, there are a lot of meal replacements out there. So what makes Runtime so special? They really set out with a mission to try to supersede standard nutrition. I mean, when you look at the junk that we put in our bodies today, there's just so much stuff that isn't necessary. And the approach that, you know, that Runtime has philosophically lines up with the idea of experimenting with new ingredients. New ingredients like isomaltulose. Isomaltulose raises your blood sugar levels way slower than the usual ingredients like sugar. This makes it the perfect distributor of steady energy. So how does Weldon use Runtime's next level meals? So I use Runtime to try to replace the worst meal of the day for me, meaning the one that I have the least time to prepare or the one that I will you know, probably just run out to a restaurant or grab a snack or might not even eat at all. And since I travel a lot, I can also use it to replace expensive airport food that might not be that good for me and you know as a gamer I like to train and I really find it difficult to set aside 45 minutes to go to prepare some real food and the fact that it's more convenient and tastes good is a fantastic side effect. If you're looking for high performance products that are natural, healthy, scientifically tested and are made for gamers by gamers, check out www.runtime.gg and use the discount code MINDGAMES, that's with an S at the end, for 10% off your order. Runtime, power up your game. Being tilted doesn't have to affect your performance. You just have to change from being emotionally driven to values driven. It can be difficult, but it's not impossible. You really have to motivate yourself by knowing what your values are, 
rather than being discouraged by something that distracts from those values. Realize that tilt-inducing event that just occurred doesn't have to keep you from achieving your goal because that tilt-inducing event is not valuable. So fast forward a few weeks. You've applied what Weldon has taught you. You had some electroshock therapy to rewire your mind. Oh, that reminds me. Hey, Weldon, do you ever close out that sponsorship with electroshocks? What do you mean dangerous? Dude, the money isn't... All right, we'll talk. We'll... Yeah, 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 we'll, we'll talk later. Sorry about that, listeners. Like I was saying, you're at a point in the future where tilt is not a major issue in your gameplay anymore. Now, for some reason, you've been keeping Weldon's secret from all your friends and they haven't learned about tilt yet. Well, besides sharing them this podcast, what else can you do to help your tilted friends? The next question is from oddjobxxxx. If we fall behind, my friends tilt pretty hard. What are some stuff I can say or do to get them out of it? This is really dependent on your friend or friends. It's completely contextual to them. Some people need support. Some people need encouragement. Some people need accountability. Some people need to feel respected and loved. Some people need to take a break. Some people need to hear that they're awesome anyway. Some people need to hear that they should buckle down and, and buck up and go for it. These kind of things. So it really totally depends on how good a read you have on your friends. But here is a tip for you. Actually, Weldon, before you go on, let's set up a scenario. I'm playing League of Legends as a support and I'm duoing with a friend who is playing AD carry. I make a bad mistake in lane and die. Later, I make an awesome play, but their enemy jungler comes in and we both die while three of them limp away with under 100 health. Yeah, I know, frustrating, right? Then a few minutes later, we get five-man ganked in the bot lane. By this time, I'm tilted. I'm, I'm so tilted. Do you know what the unhelpful thing my AD carry said to me was? Absolutely nothing. You just had a large sigh. <sighs> yeah, you know, one like that. And never acknowledged what happened. That doesn't work for me. It might for some, but not for me. And I never understood why I don't like that until hearing what Weldon has to say next. So listen close because it pertains to the vast majority of you as well. But here is a tip for you. 90% of the time, I would say, from our friends, what we want is to not be ashamed. Most of the time, when you mess up in front of a friend, Shame is the number one factor in a person's tilt or behavior or embarrassment or whatever. And shame is a really hard thing to deal with. It's essentially like your self-worth. And so you need to find a way to erase their shame. And that is a really tough thing because it's an internal metric. And so externally, what you can do are things like, gosh, this is the thing. It's so different with every person, right? You might say, it's okay. I love you anyway, and I might just piss them off and make them feel more ashamed. Or it might erase their shame and make them feel good, depending on contextually like how they're wired up. And I just can't answer that because that's the job that I was doing in teams in spring split of 20, 
15, I was working, you know, one-on-one -on -one with players and we were dealing with those kinds of things. Like when you're forbidden and you have a really good showing at Worlds and then you, you know, you don't do so well the next split and every single game you go in and everybody expects you to do well and you don't. How do you deal with that shame on a personal level and be able to grow with it instead of let it crush you? Because in reality, what I saw from Forbidden when I was watching him play was he was doing like fairly consistently in terms of like his skill set. And, but his self-evaluation of that was, well, I have these expectations of myself. My fans have these expectations of myself and I don't match them. I don't match what I want to be. I don't want to match what my fans want to be. And therein lies the difference between like, guilt and, sh and shame. Guilt is fine. Guilt is like, I did something wrong or I screwed up. Shame is like, I'm a bad person. Therefore, I screwed up or did something wrong. And by the way, I, I wasn't working with Forbidden. That was just an example that I wanted to give because you could, you could see that he had a really hard year and he, it was so hard that he wanted to reboot, right? So he had to go somewhere else and just reboot so that he could get a fresh tactical mindset going on. You're going to have to figure that out. Try to get them to feel guilty and try to help them ease their shame. That's my bet for you. Good luck. Make them feel guilty. So does that mean I get to yell at them? Well, unless that actually helps them untilt, which it probably doesn't, that's not what Weldon means. Let's jump back to my example where I'm super tilted. I'm the first to admit when I messed up in a game, and therefore my poor play is my fault. I can live with that. There's nothing wrong with that. We're all human, we all make mistakes, but I don't know what's going on in my, my friend's head. I'm hoping that he's thinking, oh, we were unlucky, made a few mistakes, and I need to keep myself untilted by staying calm and quiet. But at this point, I'm super insecure, low on confidence, and feeling guilty. A little bit of shame there too. So I can only imagine he's actually thinking, Sam sucks. Why did he do that? He is ruining my win rate. He is the worst person alive and even a worse support player. By the way, he's ugly. Shame is all about myself. My mistakes are indicative to who I am as a person. It is the fear of being rejected by my peers because of who I am. Guilt, on the other hand, well, that's just about what I've done, my actions and behaviors. That action led to being unsuccessful. I'm guilty of that. What I needed from my friend, because I felt like a worthless meatbag, is an acknowledgement of my mistake. Maybe even a little scolding. But to know that my friend still thinks that we, meaning him and me, can still salvage this game, that is key. He probably doesn't know that though, since I haven't communicated that to him yet. And speaking of communicating to tilted teammates, segue alert! Lolnox, with two X's, asks, How can I effectively communicate to my team what needs to be done next in the game when they're tilted and not wanting to listen? Hmm, so usually I answer this question by saying that when somebody is like tilted or not wanting to listen, it's just a bigger challenge. When somebody is coachable, anybody can coach them. When somebody is uncoachable, you have to be better to coach them. When somebody is like impossible to coach, you have to be amazing to coach them. So if you want to communicate with a team of like avid listeners who are going to follow every word you say, it's easy. You just say words and they listen and you do it, right? If you want to communicate to people who don't want to listen to you, then you have to be a better communicator. You have to figure out, first ask yourself this, 
is my objective that I feel good for saying the thing that I'm saying? Or is my objective that my teammate's behavior changes? Okay, important distinction. If the important thing is that your teammate's behavior changes, then you have to say the thing that they need to hear or they want to hear to change their behavior. You don't get to say the thing that you want to say to change their behavior. You have to say the thing that they want to hear to change their behavior. If your goal, if your primary driving goal and motivation is to change their behavior, if it's not, if it's actually selfish, if it's like, well, I just want to tell them this thing so I feel better about, about it. And if they don't listen, it's just they're not a good listener, then you're not being like self-aware and honest about like what it is that's truly driving you. Um, or it's driving you, but like you can't contain that like kind of egotistical part of you and subvert it to the mission. So if the mission is behavior change, let's say that's the mission then, then you got to explore and investigate your teammate and find out what it is that they need to hear in that moment to, to empower them and help them over the hurdle into the next action, which is like closer to what will win the game. Okay, it's not going to be like the ideal one usually right away, but it's going to be closer to the one that's... Uh, to the one that you want and then you kind of lead them there so that's basically like empathetic and emotional leadership and that's something that you can practice and get better at and just ask yourself like first start with yourself if i was in that situation what are the things that make me feel good what are the things that help me overcome the frustration that i'm feeling and like move to the next step of like being like okay yeah maybe i made a mistake and trying to change and then try to put yourself in your friend's shoes and Think like, okay, well, how would they want that phrased from me? What would they want to hear to like boost themselves up to the point where they can start being self-critical again? Because the real problem that you have is like they can't criticize themselves, which is what they need to do when they're being attacked on all sides. That's a really common thing. So a lot of times you need to like be the safe space for them so that they can feel empowered and they can attack themselves again and self-criticize themselves to grow. So that is one kind of way to look at it too. Reality check. How badly... Do you really want to win this match? Do you want to win this match? Or do you want to appease your ego? And when I say ego, I don't mean that huge inflated version of yourself that believes you are a challenger god on the rift. No, I'm talking about the ego that gets bruised when you become a punching bag for the team. Are you willing to be undervalued? Are you willing to feed your friend's ego when they, when they don't deserve it? How much of your pride and ego are you willing to give up to win this match? We're not talking about choosing between winning and stroking your eping. We're talking about the small things that may go unnoticed. Why do you need to tell your jungler that we lost Baron because they missed Smite? Really, think about it. The jungler already knows that he missed his Smite. The rest of the team knows it too. Is there a little something in you that wants to blame them or deflect the responsibility of your lack of shot calling leadership? Or did you make a mistake before that everyone thought was detrimental, but now this one is a little more detrimental and everyone should know that it's not your fault that you guys are losing the game now? Is it to make a little jab at the jungler? Because he has been hounding you whenever you miss smites when you're playing jungle. This is deep. It really requires difficult self-evaluation and understanding. But that's your homework. Now, 
Going back to the topic of guilt and shame, you need to be able to create a safe space where shame is removed and where they can feel guilt. They need to be in a safe space where you and your teammates do not need to attack them because they can be self-critical themselves. No shame, just guilt. That is weird to say, but it makes sense. Now, realistically, there is some sort of balance on how much abuse you can, will, or should take, depending on the goal. Is that effort really worth it? Well, that's for you to decide. Tilt. It's a mental and emotional state of frustration that leads to suboptimal decisions. It's not just limited to games and competitions, it's in our everyday lives. Ultimately, it's hard to avoid, but we can take steps to diminish its effect, react to extinguish quicker, not let it affect our decisions, and help appease the tilted. But all these actions start from you. Take some time to really do some self-reflection. If you don't, you'll forget, and you'll tilt more and more, and it'll stay a habit. Just like Smokey the Bear once said, only you can prevent tilt. Or something like that. Welcome to the Weldon Journey, the part of the show where Weldon talks about whatever experiences and thoughts he wants to talk about during his time being the assistant coach to G2. Since this podcast has been released after the start of the 2017 spring split of the European LCS, we'll be going back in time to start with weeks one and two. Enjoy. So G2 started with a, with a doubleheader for me in Berlin, both in terms of we had, we had two matches. So we went up against Fnatic and then Rokat, or Rockat, I'm not really sure how to pronounce it. And then I also did a doubleheader because the way that I'm working right now with my focus on leaguecoaching.gg, essentially I'm spending one week in Berlin and then one week in Uvascula, which is where I'm from, from Finland, because I can work by distance and I can work on my website and I can, uh, unlike TSM where I was working full-time, like 16-hour days, you know, head coach kind of like responsibilities, in G2 I purposely took an assistant coach job. I want to focus on leaguecoaching.gg, which is how I feel like I can reach an impact more people. Actually, I just read an article interviewing Daylor, and I realized that he kind of stepped out of coaching for the same reasons that I am going into leadcoaching.gg as one of my focuses, which is that that he noticed that he could he could only impact, you know, the five players that he had in front of him at the time. He couldn't really impact, you know, the entire esports scene by coaching one team. So he wanted to go more into either project management or developing products that serve the whole scene. And rewind that to 2012 when I first kind of discovered eSport. I wanted to essentially impact the youth sport development. So development of youth through sport, but in eSport. Because I was a youth sport coach and I realized, oh, this is not going to, like in, in five, in 15 years, there's not going to be nobody on my swim team anymore. They're all going to be playing some League of Legends or CSGO or iteration of one of those games, you know, in their high school in a competitive league. So, so yeah, so this is kind of like a natural transition or fluid like progression of, of what my plan has been since for the last uh, five years. And so 
I think that Carlos, working with Carlos has been really important because he kind of sees that vision and he knows that they can coexist with what I'm then and feed into kind of what I'm doing at, at G2, which is working with the League of Legends coaching staff and League of Legends players, uh, much lighter than I did when I was fully integrated with TSM in a way to kind of figure out how to be more optimal about it. And, and I think it works nicely because really, if I, if I look at how my life is constructed right now, it's, it's, it's really kind of like how I like to pursue project, which is all in, all out, all in, all out. Uh, I really don't do well when I'm kind of like well-balanced, dabbling in the middle and I do a couple things. I do well when I'm completely focused on something I'm super passionate about. And then when I can just check out and go somewhere else, not think about it. So for me, when I leave the children here in Finland and I go to Berlin, you know, it's all day, everyday esport, nothing but business and esport. And then when I come back, I can kind of like elastic band the other way. So I get a lot more done. I feel like this is an individual working that way. But that's kind of a side note about from what what I'm working on with, with G2 and League Coaching.gg. So I did a double header in Berlin to sync up my personal calendar with what I thought the most important events were for the first half of the split, for the spring split. So um, I, I came there for the whole week leading up to the whole week leading up to the first two games and then the week before that too. And we covered the basics. I mean, I went back to the beginning and it was really fascinating to see where the beginning was for G2. I remember in TSM, I did the beginning kind of like during playoffs. I don't know if you remember in the spring split of 2016, but uh, I got to work with them one week during the split. And then they actually brought me back for playoffs, which was fun because then we got to get to the finals, but then they didn't, they didn't keep me there for the finals. They won every single week I was there and they lost every single week I wasn't. So anyway, um, I got to go through the basics then. And when I stepped back into the team for the summer split, everybody but Biofrost was kind of up to speed in the basics. And I remember kind of noticing that I didn't cover the same topics with him right away. I was like, oh yeah, he hasn't heard this before. And having to kind of like go back in, in with him, like in the meetings, like one-on-ones, but with G2. So I just, you know, I, I assumed that they hadn't heard it before, which is great. And I kind of started back at the beginning, but they've actually been together for, you know, an entire split. And for some of them, you know, an entire, um, actually have anybody been there yet? Was it Trick and Luca are pretty much the OG members? Not OG, like origin, but original. Yeah. So, so they, they've been together for a while and they've been through a lot of like trials and tribulations, like it's a five man squad. So they actually had a lot of the basics out of the way. It was really cool to see. And, and same with their strategy, right? trying to create proactivity and uh, understanding about where to be when on the map. Uh, just, we didn't have to start as much basic as, as I have had to with other squads. So that, that was really cool to see. Um, there, it felt like they were really carrying over strategy and knowledge and tactics from, from the last season, which probably helped uh, kick off the season on a, on a strong note. When I came into TSM, I had three days before the first match. I felt like I didn't have any impact at all on the, on the first performance of the first game. But when I came into G2, I had 14 days to work on, or maybe 12 days to work on before our first match against Fnatic. And so I had I had one-on-one meetings with a couple of the players. We haven't even got through them all yet, I think. Uh, and, I, and I started teasing my, testing my toes in the multilingual nature of G2, right? So there's Korean members of the team, there's Korean speaking members, and there's 
non-native English speaking members and that, you know, where you have to create a common vocabulary to describe topics, which a lot of them they have, but then there's new concepts. And uh, Yoon Trick is actually like really good at English and Dehan is like really motivated to learn English. But um, <clears throat> I'm basically like, basically had to, <clears throat> excuse me, I had to find an interpreter to work with because I'm talking about really deep concepts and I want to make sure that we get actual things happening, you know, in the brain, which means we come at it this in the mother tongue where these concepts can be fully explained in a really deep and emotional way, which can really only happen in a, in a language that you fully comprehend. And then, and then I'm also studying Korean, which hopefully will help. Yeah, we, we got to the games and Fnatic was really worrisome because we obviously it's the first game and we didn't really have any bearing on, on how and how we were doing and, and where we were as a squad other than scrim results. So it was a really satisfying win and it, it was all the more satisfying because of the comebacks that were involved in winning, which, um, which are for me a really important litmus test as to mental resilience. I don't really care as much about choreography in an early part of the game if you can't consistently close out late game decisions. So by that I mean like is it, if you win when you're ahead and you lose when you're behind, you're never going to have a consistent level of performance because you can't control uh, luck, right? And and the, the luck of sport exists in League of Legends just like it does in every sport and things just happen. You're just like a couple seconds late or you're, um, you know, you dodge the wrong way on a skill shot. It's kind of like penalty shooting in, in soccer, you know? There is a com huge component of luck in the direction that you choose to dive as a goalie, in the direction they choose to shoot as a shooter. And that thing is at play when people are shooting skill shots and the other person is dodging. So let's just say you choose to dodge the wrong way. Um, and you get chunked, and that's the game right there. So you, So mental resilience in League of Legends is about having a playbook from behind that revolves around maintaining the gold spread and not letting it grow, which you do by proactively pushing your opponent to kind of make them play into your strategy. And they do by trying to force their strategy upon you, and you do by trying to defend that strategy while forcing your own agenda and see who blinks first. So building that playbook is, uh, is like my first priority in any team. And I used to start building it from the beginning of the game onward, but I learned at Worlds that you should start. You should build that playbook from the end of the game backwards. With with G, with TSM, I started with the most obvious part of the game, which is the beginning. But with G two, we're. I want to start with the end, and the reason I want to do that is because at Worlds, it's really clear that the teams there are are excellent at winning the game. Period. No matter where they are, and in best of ones, the the ability to snowball and the ability to the ability to snowball and be flexible with your draft and like come out with crazy situations is really, really important. Um, and so we were training for best of fives and then everybody has to play best of one at Worlds. So I want to be like super sharp about our kind of like ability to do crazy and interesting drafting and kind of like uh, snowball scenarios. I would say, the closer we get to best of one series. And in the meanwhile, I want to make sure that our, our late game fundamentals are so 
instinctive and so correct that you just kind of win games when with a certain comp when they pass a certain minute there's like almost no possibility of losing because you make so few mistakes because there's to be perfectly honest there's more controllable things in the end game like there's just less stuff that matters and you can group more and you can just do what's important you can just do one simple play that is well structured over and over again and win the game and so the sooner we start training that the better in my opinion okay our second game was against rocket and that kind of went as expected it was uh it was they were putting up a fight which was nice to see. I was really glad to see that they did put up a fight. But it didn't really challenge the, the team much in terms of anything other than like trying not to lose the game. Week two of the EU LCS, I was in Uvascula. So I took a, I took a week in Finland and it was, it, I had, I think I had a session with one of the guys by distance, but it was like, uh, it was really different to be away from the team. So they were playing misfits and I just wasn't there. So this, uh, the last split, you know, I was, I was there with the team every single day and every single match. And, um, it felt good to kind of let them go off and try to see them fly. And what we worked on a lot in the previous two weeks was, like I mentioned in prep for Fnatic and, and Rocket, we, we went over the fundamentals, which is focusing on the present moment, learning how to exercise that muscle, which is going to be something we focus on every single day. But then for also those two weeks, we started working on bonding. So team bonds are a little misunderstood. There are organizations that do team bonding in a very like overt PR way, like CLG, which, so if you think about it, they go and they do like a family bond thing, like eating a meal or like doing a rope course or whatever, in hopes that the bonds that they grow while doing that activity will have an impact on performance. Whereas my approach is I look at the research of what kinds of bonds and what kinds of needs there are for the improvement of performance. And I take two players and I stuff them together and I force them to develop that exact bond in a constructed way. So this is more efficient, right? Because let's say you have 50 meals together and you hope that at one of those meals, two people bond in a way that the other one will trust them to try harder when they're failing in the scrim environment. You don't know if that's going to happen because you're not forcing the situation and you're just hoping that it happens naturally in the environment. I don't think that I have time for that. I certainly didn't have time for that in TSM. You know, we had three months to try to win worlds. So I, I constructed those situations and forced them to happen. And what resulted was much stronger bonds of brotherhood than I have seen on any other team, really, in, in the NALCS. Because like there's this there's this aspect of information sharing and vulnerability that goes along with building the kind of bond that you have in warfare where like you might even not like the guy but you would die for them which is the kind of bond that you need on, on a performance situation and that can be intentionally created if you if you do a well-designed kind of activities and dates and questionnaires together so that's what we did in tsm every single time something came up and, and even before it came up you know i would construct a date with a set of questions or things that they had to go over and it's really simple some things related to what was going on and then other things related to not at all that but human aspects of those two people things that they don't know about each other and deep information sharing vulnerable information sharing and what happens when you like reveal secrets and vulnerability to somebody is you feel closer to them it's not actually the reception of secrets and vulnerability that make you feel closer to them it's the giving of them that does it so forcing that to kind of happen. 
in a one-on-one, in a dyad, in a dyad. It's so much more important to do those dyadic conversations than the, than the groups where like a lot of the conversation can just be memes and, and like surface level talk. So we did that the first three weeks in, in G2. We took my, the survey that I constructed, I designed it like from a piece of research that was researching dyadic relationships. And what I noticed was there were actually already quite deep bonds among the teammates. Um, and the, the path that we have to go is, is much shorter in terms of like, I will sacrifice for this person. I will trust this person that they will put in the effort. I will trust that this person can get better. I will trust that this person can clutch like these kind of quintessential skills you have if you want to know that you can make the play and or move on with the training to the next step, which is like identifying errors rather than identifying lack of effort, you know, things like that. So yeah, that was, that was really fun. And I think it's going to lay the groundwork for the future. I don't think it has any immediate amazing impact on itself, but it definitely has an impact three, six months down the road and, and every single day in the training environment. Yeah, the Misfits game went, <clears throat> I guess, uh, as uh, a little bit unexpected. I was, I was thinking Misfits was going to be a super, super powerhouse because I really like the brand and I really like the team and I really like the coach and I really like all the players. And I was hoping that they would come in like FlyQuest and just like fleek all over everybody. Um, but they didn't. And they were a fun match, but ultimately, uh, I think the drafting was weak. And so you give away free games in the draft. Drafting is literally the most important part of the game. You can win and lose the game in like three minutes. There's no other three minutes in the game that are as important other than like the final play before you take their nexus. Uh, or, or, you know, there are a set of inhibitors. I guess I would say the inhibitor plays because inhibitors are pretty hard to come back from um, if the other team plays correctly. But other than that, three minutes where you, you do the play that gets you the inhibitors um, post 25 minutes, not like the early inhibitors that can like be played around, or like the three minutes of draft. I think those are the two most important parts of the game that you can just win or lose right there. So got to focus a lot on that if you want to be a top team. The Weldon Green Podcast used songs from playonloop.com, soundslikeairfall.com, corned beef soup, and chill hop records. The rest of the audio you've heard is from Sam Hahn, Riot Games, Jane Hahn, www.freesfx.co.uk, and of course, Weldon Green. This episode was edited by the two Sams, Sam Turnberg and me. Special thanks to the people who sent in questions to the Ask Weldon Show. And if you've enjoyed the show, we would really appreciate it if you subscribe so you can be the first to hear the next episode. And help spread the word by sharing via Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or whatever other ways you can. And again, I'm Sam Han, and you've just listened to the Wild and Green Podcast.